Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 304. Today we're talking about country rap. Today we're talking about country rap, which is kind of a continuation of the Dirty South stuff. Uh, remember, this is a bit more thematic. Uh, this one's dates are kind of similar to the Dirty South. This is kind of like crunk music in that it was kind of a subgenre of Dirty South. However, it's got a lot more interesting dynamics when it comes to uh, modern-day issues, issues of race and class and geography. Uh, pretty interesting stuff. So we're, today we're talking about country rap. Why don't you open up the... Uh, Open up the the PowerPoint on Moodle, and we'll get started. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, whenever I started doing research on this, uh, the Little Nas X song, um, you know, Horses in the Back, did not exist yet. It was not quite in existence yet. Uh, that song has been the longest number one on Billboard, I, I think, ever. The remix with, uh, with Little Nas X and uh, Billy Ray Cyrus, as you see right there. Uh, there is a, this song didn't come without controversy, though. This song definitely did not come without controversy. You see, uh, Little Nas X, by the way, his real name is Montrello Hill. Um, 19 straight weeks of number one. The song's kind of a hybrid between country rap music, uh, Old Town Road. You know Old Town Road. It was a pretty popular song a year or two ago. You know, he's rapping about wearing both a Gucci cowboy hat and Wrangler jeans. Uh, the instrumentation samples with country music and rap music, and there was a bit of there was a bit of controversy. Uh, whenever basically uh, the song first came out, it was placed on the country charts. It was placed on the country charts. It actually started at number nineteen, and then Billboard removed it. Uh, Billboard removed it from the country charts, saying, "quote The song did not merit inclusion on Billboard's country charts when determining genres. A few factors are examined." But first and foremost is musical contribution, uh, composition. While Old Town Road incorporates references to country and cowboy imagery, it does not embrace enough elements of today's country music to chart its current version. Uh, likewise, you know, whenever the CMAs, the Country Music Awards, came up, uh, Hill was not nominated for Song of the Year nor Single of the Year at the Country Music Awards, despite it kind of being a country hit, because even with uh, the popularity of Little Nas X, the mixture of country and rap music was problematic for the gatekeepers of Nashville. And the reason I'm talking about this is because this is not really unique for these type of artists. Uh, artists who are trying to bridge the gap between country and rap music, uh, I call it country rap, this is primarily what it's called, um, a lot of interesting idiosyncrasies. And when determining country rap, when determining country rap, uh, there are three things we're looking for. There are the oral, lyrical, and visual elements. When talking about oral elements, it's basically sound elements. When you talk about instrumentation and composition, you know, is it using country instruments? You know, fiddle, uh, banjo, you know, kind of uh, country riffs. Is it sampling country songs? Uh, lyrical, um, you know, the vocabulary, and also a lot with the inflection. You know, what sort of dialect is being used? Uh, how are words pronounced? Is that being done from a rural or a uh, you know kind of a hybrid perspective? And finally, visual, uh, a music video and the stage persona. Is, is the individual artist really embodying this in the way they're going about? You know, with Little Nas X, with his music videos, he was doing the cowboy hat thing and the jeans, even though he's wearing a Gucci cowboy hat. Uh, same sort of shtick. And the real thing you really want to think about with country rap music, probably the one thing that denotes it from, like, crunk music or Dirty South music, is that it comes from a rural perspective. Uh, I think that's probably the the big highlight here, is that it comes from a rural perspective. Now, as I said, there are three distinct waves of country rap. You've got one more. Uh, you'll see the, the three different waves. We'll, we'll talk about the first two primarily. Uh, I don't really talk too much about the third wave because it's theoretically going on, but I will tell you enough to tell you that it gets kind of problematic. Uh, the first wave of country rap, though, kind of begins in 1984, 1985. These waves of music, it shows how issues of class and race intermix with a musical business that's not really able to promote music that defies easy categorization. Uh, there has been markets for country rap singles. In fact, that's something we're going to talk about, is that periodically country rap songs will become popular. 
However, it's not really sustained success for a lot of different reasons I'm going to get into. So, okay, the first wave of country rap, the first real country rap song is uh, Rappin' Duke. Now, I, I should say all these earlier uh, country rap um, songs are very much novelty songs. Uh, they're mainly kind of, you know, mimicking the other genre. Either it's a rap song that's talking about, you know, country stuff, or a country song kind of making fun of rap stuff. It's not really trying to seek a perspective or a particular worldview or show any insight. Mainly just a novelty. Uh, really demonstrates the divisions between the genres, you know, uh, young, black, and urban versus older, white, and rural. Uh, probably the earliest example of this, if you go over, you'll see Rappin' Duke in 1984, uh, done by a guy by the name of Sean Brown. Uh, Sean Brown is a black rapper. He's from New York. Um, he's, he does basically a rap that sounds like John Wayne. Uh, you can find it on YouTube, where pretty much it's got the, uh, you know, kind of early Def Jam style uh, record scratching. It sounds very 80s, but he's rapping like John Wayne, like, hey there, Pilgrim, I'm the best rapper around type of shit right there. Um, it's, it's a novelty song. It gets national release after regional success. Weirdly enough, it becomes most popular in San Diego. I, I'm not sure why San Diego takes such a liking to it. It might be a Navy thing. I'm not sure. But basically, this song starts out in San Diego, and it kind of goes on to larger things nationwide. Um, some other rap songs talk about the, the rapping dude. Uh, for instance, in Juicy. For instance, in Juicy... Uh, the Notorious B.I.G. mentions the Rappin' Duke. Um, very much a novelty, extremely a novelty. It's not really, it, it's it's kind of a rap song, but it's kind of a very early rap song, which is kind of making fun of country stuff. Uh, the same could be applied if you go over one more to 1985, a song that's literally called Country Rap uh, by the Bellamy Brothers. Uh, the Bellamy Brothers are still touring. In fact, they were in... Right before coronavirus, they were actually in Albany, Louisiana, where I live, so go figure. Um, they do a song called Country Rap, and this is kind of a country song that sort of raps. I mean, they're they're doing very simplistic rhymes, talking about, like, you know, we got, you know, we're, we're different because we got, you know, haystacks, and that's a rap type of thing. Very much of a novelty genre. Uh, I should mention there are a ton of novelty rap songs early on because people thought it's easy and that theoretically anybody could rap, and that's kind of what you have. I mean, like, pretty much anybody who was anybody made a rap song, um, like random celebrities and stuff. But the Bellamy Brothers, they are pretty much a standard uh, country act. They just do this as kind of a joke. Uh, like I said, very much in the novelty song. Kind of parodies the rap genre. Parodies, like, you know, the flashiness. or like, oh, we have fancy cars, except we're, it's pickup trucks and mules or what have you. Uh, weirdly successful on the country charts. It actually charts at number 31 on the country charts. And like I said, these are both very much uh, representative of early country rap, uh, pretty much def strongly, like definitively in one genre or the other. Um, they are using elements of both, but it's not really embodying like a rural identity or saying how both genres truly relate to you or something that you can really feel in you. Uh, next song, kind of like this, is Wild Wild West from 1987 uh, by Cool Modi. Uh, cool Modi is a Mohannes Deweese, is, is his given name. Um, fairly successful, fairly successful. This song will get sampled later on by Will Smith for another song called Wild Wild West in 1997. Uh, actually goes to number four on the hip-hop charts. Number four on the hip-hop charts. But more unique about this song it actually charts on the singles charts as well. This is the first quote-unquote country rap song to actually do anything on the single charts. Now, what's also interesting about this is that it, it, it goes a little bit into more about, you know, how you're using the language of country music to explain a urban uh, existence. Uh, remember, Cool Modi is definitely talking about the urban society, uh, however, he's talking about in, in uh, Wild Wild West how the Wild West is an apt metaphor for where he's growing up. Um, it's kind of a fantasy world. Uh, the music video plays on a lot of tropes, but he's kind of saying that, hey, you know, my neighborhood, the ghetto, whatever you want to call it, is like the Wild West. It's, you know, you know it's, it's a place where it's kind of lawless and you have to, you know, have your own thing, you know, carry your own gun, 
be your own man, really playing into like the Cowboy mythology of the United States. Now, the height, the height of uh, country rap's first wave, and weirdly the most successful, is uh, Tennessee by Arrested Development. I mentioned them briefly. I mentioned them briefly in the um, in the uh, Dirty South rap. Uh, they're a fairly early Atlanta-based rap group. Uh, they're they're pretty much really in the alternative or positive rap subgenre. Um, like backpack rappers, we're going to talk about them later. A bit more introspective, a bit more Afrocentric. Uh, they're a collection of several artists, but it was really headlined by rapper Thomas Speech Todd and DJ Timothy Headliner Bardwell. And they're the joint creative heads of most of the group's early work. Now, the song itself, the song Tennessee, written by Todd following the deaths of his grandmother and brother in, in short, uh, short succession. Basically, uh, his grandma and his brother died very closely to each other. And he's also talking about, you know, the fact that his, you know, his family members have died, but also the complicated relationship a lot of African-Americans have with the rural areas of the South. Uh, hopefully in your class, we discussed the Confederate flag and uh, how some dirty South rappers used it as part of their embalmology. Uh, this one's a bit more nuanced about it. You know, he talks about how the land seems very strange, but it's also a place where he's trying to find comfort. It's theoretically a prayer. Um, you know, it, in it, speech is pretty much saying that the rural landscape of Tennessee is both comforting and unsettling. A more primal land where the emotions he was feeling with towards the death of his loved ones, as well as the stresses of urban life, could be fully exposed. Uh, for instance, there's a line, uh, Where the ghost of my childhood haunts me, walk the roads where my forefathers walked, climb the trees where my forefathers hung from, assay trees for all those wisdom. So it's like, you know, this is a comforting place. It's where my forefathers were. This is where they lived. But it's also where some of them were lynched. And it's, it's this thing where it's like the South, for a lot of African Americans, particularly the rural South, is both a strange place but also a comforting place. That is on Moodle. I, I would highly recommend you listen to it. Um, it. It's interesting is that it's not really taking too much country elements in it, but it's very talking rural elements. It's very much talking about how, you know, speech is, uh, you know, he's from Atlanta, primarily a urban guy, but sometimes, you know, he has to recognize his rural roots, his, his rural roots as an African-American, and a land which is both comforting but also unsettling. This song was a commercial and a critical hit. Um, it actually goes number one on the Billboard rap chart, and goes up to number six on the Billboard uh, Hot 100. So it is actually getting massive mainstream success. Um, likewise, the group does really well when it comes to the Grammys. Critically, this thing was loved. Uh, it got the got the Grammy for Best Rap Performance by a Group or Duo, and also they got the Grammy for Best New Artist. So although t Tennessee was a bit of a high point, for, you know, this, the potential for saying that, hey, there, there's, there's a place for African-Americans, particularly rural African-Americans, to express their experiences, you know, talk about the relationship that African-Americans have with rural life, which is something you hadn't really had in modern African-American music. Uh, prior to, like, the 1920s, prior to the Great Migration, um, African-Americans were perceived as primarily a, a rural phenomenon, and um, some of the music that came out, you know, this is very early recording, recording area, kind of reflects this kind of, I don't want to say hybridization, but just basically a very rural African-American experience. Once you get into the 30s and 40s, though, pretty much all African-American uh, musical expressions are said to be urban. And this kind of goes on throughout the decades. It's the first time in quite a while where it's like, hey, rural African-Americans have something to say you know, they, they don't, they're not able to speak in the language or the music that's currently out there. You know, bluegrass or country music, which we'll talk about country music in, in just a second, doesn't really seem to speak for them. Ironically, it also denotes the receding of the first wave of country rap. Uh, they're, they're, the Arrested Development did try to do some other albums. They really struggled to find commercial success. 
And ultimately, they have so much internal tension that uh, that Barnwell, who is the DJ D- DJ headliner, leaves the group in 1996. Now, I should mention uh, the success of Arrested Development in Tennessee come at a time where the geography of hip hop is shifting. This is when Atlanta is starting to come into more prominence, which you talked about with the Dirty South rap. Uh, you know, you're having more rap come from different areas. If you go over one more slide, you'll see what's going on. It's the rise of Southern rap, Dirty South rap in particular. Uh, there is also the success of fusion country artists. Let's talk about that for a second. Uh, there is, okay, country music as a genre as we know it is a fairly new invention that comes about in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, prior to the 40s and 50s, pretty much all country music, regardless of race, black and white, was generally labeled hillbilly music. Generally labeled as hillbilly music, uh, you know, fiddle, banjo, things like that. Uh, f- instruments and styles that were played actually by both black persons and white persons. And there's actually a good bit of African Americans in early country music. Uh, for instance, have you ever heard of the Grand Ole Opry? The Grand Ole Opry is a the mainstay radio show for country music. The first guest the Grand Ole Opry ever had on it was a country fiddler who was black. A uh, lot, lot of hillbilly, quote-unquote, was deemed black music. But when you get into modern country music, when it moves to Nashville, when it becomes centered in Nashville as opposed to other places in the South, Nashville very much has a version of country music that is extremely white. Uh, lily white, as you will. It, it kind of shows the segregation of Nashville, the town, as representative of the segregation throughout the South. And for the longest time, Nashville, Nashville's music scene was very image conscious of what sort of country artists they want to promote, and it's generally white artists. White artists that are quote-unquote country, which is over in the earlier hillbilly music. Uh, like old, old country music, like you know, we're talking like the 19-teens and 20s, sounds completely different than like your Hank Williams Sr. type country music. And by the way, Hank Williams Sr. was influenced a lot by African Americans, so go figure. But in the 90s, you start having the success of fusion country artists. Country artists that mix country music with either rock and roll or pop music. Uh, Two examples, uh, country artists that mixes rock and roll and country music is Garth Brooks. Uh, Garth Brooks becomes the biggest name, bar none, in country music during this time. Uh, You know, there, there are plenty of people in country music that say he's like, bastardizing the genre, he's an illegitimate country artist, but he is making more money than anybody. He is selling more albums than anybody. If we're talking the early 90s, that is Garth Brooks' territory. Uh, Same thing if you want to talk about an artist who mixes pop and country music is Shania Twain, kind of the mid to late 90s. Uh, Shania Twain is a, actually she's Canadian, she's a female country singer, but her music very much crosses the line between pop music and, you know, with something like a Madonna or Britney Spears and country. You know, she's deemed as country, but the way she performs is not seen as traditional country. Now, what also seems to happen is that both genres kind of get centered in two places. Uh, rap music, as we talked about last week, the Dirty South really seems to be centered in Atlanta, and Nashville is, for quite a long time now, been centered in Nashville. Country music is pretty much the center for country music. And so you're, 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 it's, it, a groundwork is being laid for more Southern artists to gain more exposure and to get record deals outside of traditional norms. Uh, country music is being a bit more you know, expansive in terms of you know, who they're going to bring in. They're bringing in country and rock hybrids and country pop hybrids. Uh, rap music is not just New York and Los Angeles. It's, it's in Atlanta. Uh, Dirty South rappers are getting bigger and bigger. Also, there's the idea of maybe we can have people, uh, artists from different areas. And this is where we talk about the second wave of country rap. The second wave of country rap begins pretty much with one song. Um, with, with the first and third waves, there's a bit of kind of hand-wringing about when they begin and when they end. Um, and by the way, there's like... I'm one of the few people who like seriously studies this and like publishes articles about it, but there are other like musical critics. I'm the only person in history who, who talks about this. Some other music uh, critics talk about this. 
But the second wave of country of country rap music, uh, without a doubt, the first one to really deliver a strongly commercial, viable country rap song, is coming from a very unlikely place. Uh, remember we said how most earlier, you know, it's in Nashville and, and um, Atlanta, that's really the basis for the country and kind of the rap stuff? Uh, it actually comes from Detroit. It comes from Detroit with one artist, one Robert Kid Rock Ritchie. Uh, the song is called Cowboy, and it's from his 1999 album, Devil Without a Cause. Now, like I said, the Devil was actually um, most of the mainstream consumer's introduction to Ritchie. Um, it's actually his first album with signing to a bigger record label. He signed with Atlantic Records. And, and this is kind of... He's part of this new... It's about the same time that Eminem is coming out. It's ironic that Eminem and um, Kid Rock are both from Detroit because it seems like, oh, this is a new renaissance of white rappers. Except Eminem, who's a bit more like, hey, I'm talking about my hard life. Uh, Kid Rock is... this is He's actually been in the rap game for a while. Um, his earlier stuff are very much in the, in the nature of Vanilla Ice. Also, I should mention his background. He is from a super wealthy family. His, uh, he's not actually from Detroit. He's from an area outside of Detroit. Um, his dad owned um, a car dealership. Like, the house he grew up in is a um, is just a ginormous... Um, gosh, how big is it? 5.5 acre property that has an apple orchard. Uh, it's actually in Romeo, Michigan, which is a rural area. Uh, the house itself was 5,600 square feet. That was the house he grew up in. Uh, he is very much a rich white kid growing up. Uh, kind of gets into country, uh, not country music, into rap music. Very much in this vanilla eye genre. He did a few albums beforehand. Um, he is starting to change his persona as early as 1996 into the... What, uh, I'm sorry, his, his new novelty, he calls it a... Redneck, shit-kicking, rap and roll band. He's basically the early, early morning stoned pip. It's kind of this new persona he's bringing up. Um, he he you know he used to just have a DJ. Now he's bringing in live instruments, which he calls the Twisted Brown Trucker Band. Uh, also, he begins incorporating a lot of Confederate battle flags into his facade, seemingly to show solidarity with Southern life. Even though, like I said, he is from Michigan. He's very much from Michigan, and it's interesting. Um, I have the video for Cowboy, if you want to watch it. Uh, very interesting song, because he's talking about the West as a place of like easy living. Uh, basically, he's like, you know, my current life sucks. I want to go out West to become a pimp. It's going to be easy life. It's going to make more money. A uh, bit of a fantasy life, but one that's not too dangerous. So it's not like he's... Any, you know, any fear of his life, he basically says, you know, I want to become a cowboy, move out west, you know, become a pimp, that sort of thing. Weirdly shades of Frederick Jackson Turner's Frontier Thesis, which is interesting. Uh, he's really cementing his identity on his, like, kind of uh, this new lower class rural America. He says, basically, I'm not straight out of Compton, I'm straight out the trailer, which is not his real life. He's basically saying, this is my new persona. Uh, you know, the, the, the accompanying music video, it, it iterates his stance. It shows him driving a semi-truck through deserted highways towards an easier life. Um, aside from his vocal delivery, there's limited elements which allude to his past in hip-hop. It does include some record scratches, but also includes, like, harmonica and playing guitar. Um, basically, he doesn't have a lot of the early accoutrement of rapping. He, earlier, he was a conventional hip-hop guy, uh, now his new persona for Atlantic Records is less affluent, it's more rural. It's actually fairly successful. Um, the song was successful, it was number 82 on the Billboard chart. Uh, Devil Without a Cause, it actually goes number one on Billboard, it becomes platinum several times over. Uh, so the single is not the most popular. Um, you, know, you, you can watch the music video if you, if you would like. Uh, the video gets a lot of airplay on TRL, on MTV's Total Request Live. Uh, his profile was raised high enough for him to be included at the Woodstock 99 concert. Uh, he tours for a short time with Aerosmith and Run DMC, which 
gets him bona fides in the hip hop world for a little while. And he was also featured heavily on WWF with with wrestling. So basically, he, while he had found limited success as just a white rapper, uh, the change in his persona to incorporate a rural depiction makes him a sensation. Albeit a problematic ambassador for the southern country elements he claims to embody. Now, with the success of Kid Rock in this, um, other artists start coming out of this. Atlantic Records is basically the record label that is assigning Kid Rock. It says, hey, we need to find somebody else to do it. They actually find Kid Rock's DJ, uh, a guy by the name of Matthew Schaefer, also known as Uncle Cracker, as his stage name. His stage name is Uncle Cracker. Uh, he ultimately gets signed to Columbia. Columbia is Richie's label. It's a bit more confusing about who owns what label, but just know they're all pretty much on the same record label. Uh, puts out his first album called Double Wide, alluding to a trailer. I should mention um, Uncle Cracker, Schaefer is also from Michigan, uh, comes from a more middle-class background. Uh, not, not as rich as Kid Rock was, but definitely not working class or poor. His parents are super, super middle class. Uh, the, fir- the the Most of the album is rap music, but ironically, his first single is called Follow Me. I don't have the video for it. You can look it up. Uh, it is pretty much devoid of rap elements. It's, it's mainly light southern rock. Um, the song Follow Me is almost a love song. It's, it's, like a, it's like a southern rock song to a girl. It's got heavy guitar influence. So even though he is a DJ, the rest of the album is primarily rap music. It's iterating this new stance, and it does really well. Um, it goes number five on the Hot 100 charts. Uh, the, the follow-up to um, Follow Me is another song called Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Uh, this one has more of a rap influence. In fact, the label thought, you know, okay, we, we've, we've done pretty well. Uh, we, can, we can do even more. This song's going to be even bigger. Uh, they spent a ton of money on the music video. I, you know, YouTube it, uh, the music video for Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. It costs a ton of money. Because it includes Jackie Chan and Owen Wilson. And by the way, Jackie Chan's doing his own stunts. So you get freaking Jack and Ch- Jackie Chan in there, you know, doing kung fu. It's, it's, it's for the uh, music video. It's part of the soundtrack of Shanghai Noon, which was a Jackie Chan, Owen Wilson movie, which is like kung fu in the Old West. And so you have this Uncle Cracker, who's there with Kid Rock too, Kid Rock's there too, wearing a cowboy hat while he's rapping with Jackie Chan. Uh, this one doesn't do too well. It doesn't even break the top 100 on the Billboard chart. And pretty much, though, it does show that Uncle Cracker's later songs, uh, and actually Kid Rock's too, they kind of drop the rap thing. Uh, pretty much as they find so much success on MTV and also CMT, a um, lot, lot, lot more popularity, and it really encourages more labels to promote more artists who start mixing country and rap music. Now, what's interesting is, aside from Nashville, which like kind of likes Kid Rock and Uncle Cracker, and that's it, um, Nashville doesn't really promote any like country rap acts. They, they don't care to. Uh, it's mainly Atlanta. Atlanta and the Dirty South record labels are the ones who really try to look towards the South. Uh, they're like, hey, if these two Michiganders can uh, carpet bag their way into representing the South, you know, being a country, Southern rural existence, considering one's from a house with a freaking apple orchard, and the other one is like a middle-class guy. They're both from Michigan, which is not Southern. They're both, like, incorporating, like, Confederate flags and stuff, which we'll talk about more. That's just fascinating. And so, basically, a lot of these Dirty South uh, record labels think, you know what? We can find our own. We'll find local talent. You know, if there if there's clearly a market for it, we should really tap into it. As I mentioned, Nashville's very hesitant about this. Nashville's very late on this. But by the time we get to like 2001, 2003, uh, you start having more country rap artists that represent the actual South who are from the South and are actually from a rural existence. And if one artist uh, really represents like the kind of dualistic nature of country rap, uh, it's this guy by the name of Warren Mathis, a.k.a. Bubble, Bubba Sparks. 
Uh, he is probably the best example of a true country rap hybrid, but it's also showing his failure to really like cross over to like find sustained success, really show the shortcomings of the genre. But first, we need to talk about Troop County. Uh, Troop County is a very rural county in Georgia. Um, Troop County, it's, like I said, super rural place in, in Georgia. Um, Warren Mathis is a, from a town in Troop, Troop called uh, LaGrange. Uh, LaGrange, it's about 65, 65 miles southwest of Atlanta. It's on the Alabama border. Uh, the demographics and economy of Troop County are representative of much of the rural south. Uh, the the county seat of LaGrange. LaGrange is a town of about 25,000 uh, in the year 2000, whenever uh, Mathis comes to pro- national prominence. Um, it's mainly a, a textile town. There's a, there's a milk and textile factory that pretty much provides pretty much all the jobs. Um, outside of LaGrange, there's about 35,000 people total in Troop County, and that's in the rural areas of Troop County, so it's a Pretty much a, a town, a, a county where you have one major city, and by major, it's about 25,000 people big, which isn't the biggest. The rest of the county is primarily rural, and it has about a 60-40 ratio between African Americans and white, I'm sorry, between white persons and African Americans. So 60% white, 40% black. Now, Mathis grows, from, grows up in a very, <laughs> he says upper-lower class upbringing. Um, it's pretty much... Um, his parents were, they, they struggled to make ends meet. Um, his dad was a school bus driver and a farmer. His mom worked as a grocery cashier. Uh, it was also a very isolated childhood. Uh, he does not grow up in um, LaGrange proper. He glo- grows up in the more rural parts of Troop County. Uh, his nearest neighbor is about a mile away. His nearest neighbor is actually an elderly African-American lady um, more than a mile away. He has this very isolated upbringing, and it's actually through this neighbor that he learns about rap music. It's because his neighbor's grandson would come periodically. Uh, his neighbor's grandson lived in like Florida and Miami, and basically would bring rap mixtapes with him. Rap, rap mixtapes were brought with him, and basically, you know, Math is like, "Hey, here's another person. I'm gonna go here." Uh, once you get to that type of isolated nature, uh, race doesn't matter as much. It's pretty much we're poor and we're living in the middle of nowhere. So Mathis starts listening to it, and he feels an affinity towards the music, and he really wants to start expressing himself in the same manner. He said he loved the rawness of it, how they're just telling um, their story. Quote, me, I just want to use the rawness of it as a vehicle to tell my story. I wanted people to understand a lot of the same things go through in rural areas and urban areas and area walk of life. It's just a different type of place, but the same struggles going on everywhere. Now, Mathis, you know, while he's doing this, he's a fairly decent football player. Almost good enough to get a scholarship. But nothing from a Division I school, so he kind of drops out. Starts doing a little bit of the rap thing. Uh, ultimately, a, a high school teammate is like, hey, I, I, got a, I, got a, you know, I got a scholarship at the University of Georgia. Why don't you come over to Athens? You're doing nothing in Troop. Um, why don't you come over to Athens? We can, you know, you can, there's a, there's more of a music scene here. And that's where basically Mathis moves to and he starts recording his music. Begins rapping in Athens, kind of getting on the college town scene. And it's around this time period, around like late 90s, early 2000s, that he comes to the attention of Shannon Hoskins, who is a producer at So So Deaf. So So Deaf, as you remember last week, it's Jermaine Dupree's label. And then, ironically, uh, one of these demos comes to the attention of a Jimmy Iovine. Uh, Jimmy Iovine, if you remember from Interscope, uh, Dr. Dre with Aftermath and also Death Row. So Iovine hears, uh, hears, hears uh, Mathis for the first time with his under his stage name of Bubba Sparks. And he asks, asks a guy by the name of Timothy Mosley, a producer, rap producer better known as Timbaland, for basically, hey, do you think this guy is any good? And when Mosley first hears Mathis's demo, he's like, this guy's really good. This is, this is going to be pretty good. And then whenever he finds out that he's white, he's like, oh my God, you got to sign this guy immediately. He could become like our Eminem. He could become like, you know, the, the guy who's going to really break forth and do this new thing. Um, 
Mosley, Timbaland really wants to work with him. It's like, you know what, there's a lot of uh, commercial potential. And basically, Iveen signs him. And basically, Bubba Sparks starts working extensively with Timbaland. If you go over one slide, you'll see his first single, which is Ugly. Uh, the first album is called Dark Days, Bright Nights. Uh, the, the instrumentation that Timbaland does for, for Bubba Sparks is some of the most out-of-this-world crazy stuff that you've ever heard. I mean, Timbaland is known already for, um, you know, just wacky instrumentations. He's doing stuff with Missy Elliott. Um, in fact, the instrumentation for Ugly is the same sitar that's used in Get Your Freak On. Um, click click the video for Ugly. It's a fascinating music video. It's a very good introduction to basically like, hey, I'm a country rapper. I'm mixing hip-hop and rap music. Uh, for instance, the line, um, let's be honest, none of us will ever, ever date a model, so let's just cut loose, ignore the repercussions. If you're scared, then forget what we're discussing. This is the New South. Take your picture of me, because I'm an effing legend, and this is getting ugly. The music video, you know, it begins with, like, uh, scenes of scantily clad video vixens, kind of typical of rap music, but also a Miss Ugly beauty pageant, which has, like, less conventional trailer park women uh, shaving their mustaches before the uh, pageant. Uh, several scenes of Mathis's rural environment as both, like, a realistic depiction of a source of mirth, um, but also it has, like, both black and white country folks. You're going to see that in the o Ugly music video. That Mathis has got, like, you know, black people, white people. They're all kind of living together. It's, uh, you know, it's a poor area. It's a run-down area. This is, you know, a dirty South area, as if you will. Uh, you know, there, there's a scene of the black and white guys. They're young men pig, uh, mud wrestling together in a pigsty. Uh, there's the there's the mixed-race crowd dancing in front of a semi-destitute strip mall. It's, it, it iterates that, like, Mathis is coming from an environment that is poverty-stricken. It is rural but it's not separated by race. And the video also has like a lot of cameos from like other rap artists. I mean, Timbaland's in it. Uh, Missy Elliott shows up at the end for the, the um, lawnmower tractor race. So there's that. The video of the single are actually pretty successful. Uh, he, uh, it ultimately tops out on the chart at number uh, 15 on the Billboard Top 100. And most interestingly, he is able to get on both uh, 106 and Park and TRL. He's able to get on both BET and MTV, but ironically enough, not country music television. Uh, CMT does not do Bubba Sparks. It's interesting, though, because like CMT loves Kid Rock. Uh, for instance, his 2001's album Cocky, this is Kid Rock's album Cocky, has the duet with Sheryl Crow, which plays extensively on country radio and the CMT network. Uh, for instance, in 2001, in the October 2001, uh, Kid Rock appears with Hank Williams Jr. on the crossover country special. Uh, basically, Richie, uh, Kid Rock goes super more into the country element, kind of dismissing the uh, dismissing the rap elements he did before, kind of embracing a new Southern lifestyle, even though he's not Southern and not poor and not rural at all. But it's interesting because Mathis, you know, Bubba Sparks, who is a poor guy from the South, who is rural, who can have a lot more legitimacy as a Southerner and a country music person, uh, Nashville doesn't want to do it. Uh, pretty much outside of Richie, uh, country music wanted little to do with most of the second wave country rap artists, even though such artists were finding commercial success and demonstrating that such a market existed for such a hybrid. Now, I should mention, uh, although a lot of the early... Uh, oh, yeah, if you go over one slide, you'll see Dark Days and Bright Nights. Also, you should say it tops pretty well in the Billboard album charts. Now, I should mention that a lot of the rappers we've talked about so far have been white. I know Rissa Development is black, but so far in the second wave, it's only been white rappers. Uh, that is not the case for all of it. In fact, only the first couple artists for country rap second wave are white most of whom were black. Now, one that actually predates the second wave by a little bit, but doesn't get national attention until the success of uh, Kid Rock and uh, Bubba Sparks is Nappy Roots. Go over one more. Uh, Nappy Roots is originally from Kentucky. They're originally from Kentucky. Most of them are from Louisville. 
Most of them from Louisville, Kentucky, which is a fairly, you know, urban, uh, conventional environment for somebody, you know, an African-American who does hip-hop to get into. Uh, they're a collective that started at Western Kentucky University. Um, the, the main headliner is um, William Hughes, goes by the stage name of Skinny DeVille. Uh, basically, they, they, they start out as a conventional rap music group. Uh, their first album, Country Fried Crest, comes out in 98. It is self-financed, mainly sells around Western Kentucky University. Uh, despite the title, it was not really country music themed. It was more like conventional hip-hop. Uh, what they do have, though, whenever Atlantic Records hears them, Atlantic Records says, hey, look, um, y'all are a standard rap group. That's not going to get y'all out of attention. I mean, you're from Kentucky. People from outside of Kentucky uh, are going to think you're country, so y'all might as well be country. And they really start pushing them towards doing country stuff. Now, there is some pushback from the members of Nappy Roots, but ultimately, they're like, you know what? Why not? It's we, you know, people are going to think we're country anyway because we're from Kentucky. We might as well play with it. So the first album with Atlantic is 2002's Watermelon Chicken and Grits, which uh, goes heavily upon the new country persona. Uh, the the first single they got is uh, All in All, All in All. Uh, basically, it it, uh, it it contains a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, here's a here's a lyrics of it. A damn shame, gotta grind everything and everything. Jimmy Crack Corn crossed the county line with Mary Janes. A long time, a gravel road, cash and fame, sold my soul. Tell him back and forth with the same jeans and nappy fro. Uh, the coming video has like them wearing jeans and overalls with country hats, rapping outside of an impoverished Kentucky landscape. There's no real subtlety to, to this image. Basically, Nappy Roots was presented as uh, exemplifying the rural African-American experience. Uh, All in All was a fairly moderate success, 51 on the Billboard chart. Uh, the second single, Poe Folks, which is what I have there, has very similar themes and imagery to All in All, but a slower, much more gospel-inspired instrumentation. It ultimately goes up by number 21 on the Hot 100. Now, I should mention the individual who produces this is uh, Phelan Alexander, uh, better known by his uh, producing name of Jazzy Faye. Uh, Jazzy Faye is an Atlanta-based uh, producer, fairly well-known for his fairly conventional Dirty South um, instrumentation otherwise, but he does a little bit more country stuff for uh, Nappy Roots. Another African-American country rap group, uh, one that I do have a video for, which is kind of fun, is The Field Mob. In 2002, their song Sick of Being Lonely, also done by uh, Jazzy Faye, also produced by Jazzy Faye. Uh, hits, uh, you know, does is a pretty sizable hit. I think it goes up to number 18 on the Hot 100. Yeah, number 18. Uh, their album, uh, From the Ruta to the Tuna, goes to number 33. It's actually certified gold. Uh, the duo is comprised of Sean Johnson and Darren Crawford. Uh, their stage names are Sean J and Smoke. Uh, they're originally from Albany, Georgia. Albany, Georgia is in uh, Dougherty County which is in the southwest portion of the state, kind of near the Florida-Alabama border. Uh, the demographics are pretty akin to Troop County, which is where uh, Bubba Sparks is from, except that about 70% of the residents are African-American. Like, very similar numbers in terms of population, in terms of poverty level, except it's a much uh, blacker area, much more, um, more African-American when it comes to its demographics. The duo, the duo takes their name from a rural section of Albany called The Field, which according to Crawford was a place in Albany where there wasn't no projects. So it was just a little part, country part of town, but it's rough. That's how we live and live in the field life. Uh, before 2002, they uh, take a fairly standard route into the music business. Their first uh, song was Project Dreams in 1999 uh, with Southern House Records, which is a record store in Albany that had a small recording studio attached. Uh, the single was a modest hit around their hometown and drew the attention of MCA Records, which is New York-based, in late 1999. Uh, basically, uh, this is whenever like record companies are trying to find Dirty South acts, so they're actually the first Southern rap group signed to a New York-based label. Uh, their first album, MCA, was 2001's Ashy to Classy, sorry, 613, Ashy to Classy, uh, which is a bit more with Dirty South Productions in terms of content and imagery. Uh, their Project Dreams was a bit uh, bit more conventional rap. 
Um, sorry, uh, sorry, not more conventional rap. It's more Dirty South rap. But their imagery was much more country. Uh, for instance, the music video Project Dreams was uh, pretty upfront with the depiction of poverty, but wasn't really rural. That changes with 2002's Sick of Being Lonely, which both the song and the music video really play up the duo's country roots. Uh, you definitely need to watch this music video because I think it is the purest example of country rap in that it's both a rap banger, but they also have a lot of country elements to it. Uh, very much saying they're from the country, but it's also kind of played for a rural uh, humorous effect. Uh, for instance, the vi music video begins with the two of them having a conversation in like a country dialect so thick that there's subtitles kind of translating it. They're kind of bumping outsiders to this posh nightclub. You know, they're bringing a pig in. They try to bribe the bouncer with a large jar of coins. Um, a lot of rural vernacular. A lot of country talk in there. Uh, for instance, um, there's one line where, um, oh gosh, who is it? It's Sean Jay. says, because uh, there ain't no mo better freakier feller from the field to creep with when you guys a dummy. Honey, you're looking good. Mo gooder than a plate of neck bones. Tenderized and yummy. Like I said, it, it's kind of a novelty song. You know, it's kind of played off for jokes. But there are other tracks on their songs, uh, sorry, on their albums, such as It's Hell, which really talks about, like, social injustice and racial profiling from a Southern lens. Um, they're more conventionally dirty South for most of their, their uh, life. But for in 2002, they're really demonstrating a country element. And it's really showing how they, it was viewed to be very profitable. A third, and I guess he's going to be the final African-American country rapper we're going to talk about, is Lavelle Banner. Sorry, Lavelle Crump, better known as David Banner. Uh, he is from Jackson, Mississippi. He does have a fairly upper-middle-class, upper comfortable lifestyle. Um, his dad was the Jackson District Fire Chief. Um, you know, that, that's not really the middle-class urban lifestyle. That's pretty conventional for both rap nor country music. Uh, he actually goes to college at Southern University, the one in Baton Rouge. He's even a student body president for a while. Uh, he does rap some while he's at Southern. It's not a major interest. It's only later, whenever he uh, puts out his first album. It's an independent record, then Firewater Boys, Volume 1. Uh, starts getting more attention from national labels because, you know, the South's very hot. Likewise, this whole country thing is getting more, more noticed, too. Uh, signs with Universal Records in 2002. And his first album with Universal is 2003's perfectly titled Mississippi the Album. Like I said, it's produced primarily by David Crump himself. He's mainly known as a producer. He raps some, but David Banner's mainly as a producer. Uh, probably one of my favorite lines that kind of talks about the real, I don't, don't want to say pain, but just like kind of the conflict that being from the South can cause for a rural African American. It's basically in the song Mississippi. He says, we're from a place where Medgar Evers lived and Medgar Evers died. We're from a place where the rebel flag still ain't burning. New schools, but the black kids still ain't learning. Um, and likewise, another song called Cadillacs from 22s. He talks about the state's history of lynching. Lord, they hung Andrew Jones. Lord, they hang Reynold Johnson. Lord, I want to find back, but I'm so sick of bouncing. Lord, I'm scored, sick of jumping. Lord, keeps taught me uh, something. He also says in the song Mississippi that he's from a place where the flag means more than me. This idea that, you know, the Mississippians are so dependent upon the rebel flag that it means more than African-American life. Uh, Mississippi, the album, doesn't have too many singles, but um, it, the album sells very well. Even though the lyrics could be theoretically uncomfortable, goes number eight. He could be conceived as a Dirty South artist. However, it, it kind of goes two and four. But... Kind of the apex of country rap, second wave, and kind of where it ultimately falters a bit is when it comes to deliverance. This was going to be Bubba Sparks' second album. Uh, all country rappers, black or white, found very early on that they could get their stuff played on BET and MTV, but not CMT. Outside of Kid Rock, uh, country rap would not get played on CMT, period. Like, even though these guys are doing very well in the Billboard charts, you know, Nappy Roots is doing great, Phil Mob's doing good, David Crump's doing fine, you know, Mathis is fine, pretty much they would not appear on CMT. And, like, the country radio stations would not play them at all. 
So even though they're singing songs and write, and having lyrics about a rural experience, Nashville makes it very clear they are not interested in promoting any country rap acts, with the exception of Kid Rock. So Deliverance was really designed to be, this is going to be the album that crosses over into Nashville. Uh, Timbaland goes nuts with the instrumentation on this one. Um, the title track I have the video for, Deliverance, uh, I, I would suggest if you if you even halfway like like Timbaland's production, I would listen to some of his other tracks on this album. Uh, specifically, Warrant. That's a very... I remember the first time I heard that. I was like, this song's production is too good for the song. Like, if that makes sense. It's like, you know, Bubba Sparks is a decent rapper, but some of the production was just like, out of its mind, this has no business being so impressive. Deliverance really doubles down on the country elements, even bluegrass elements. It has a lot of banjo, steel guitar, harmonica, fiddle. A uh, lot of lot more introspective. Uh, reflects more upon the complexity and nuance regarding life in rural America. When it was released in September 2003, it was highly praised by pr- critics in both the pop and um, rap charts. They're like, wow, this is really good. Interscope spends a ton of money um, trying to promote this to Nashville. They, they do so hard. Uh, the, the title music video, which we see for Deliverance, really uh, draws a lot of inspiration from the movie Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which was played extensively on CMT. Like, you know, country music really embraced the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou. Um, and it, it seems like it's going to go fine. It goes number 10 on the Billboard charts. That's where it debuts. Falters pretty quickly afterward. And it's one of these times where it kind of falls through the cracks because Mathis said it was just too hard to qualify. He's like, you know, how do you promote this album whenever the music business is easily divided into like country or rap or rock? So people are saying it's too country or it's too rock or it's too rap. There's a lot of confusion. Um, with with all respect to Mr. Mathis slash Bubba Sparks, I, I say it's because Nashville did not promote it. Uh, uh, why Nashville didn't promote it, we'll talk about later, but the fact that Nashville didn't promote it, um, this kind of becomes a, a turning point in the genre. This is kind of the, the climax of country rap second wave because rap music and Dirty South rap was very, very popular um, and had a willingness to engage with country music. Nashville said it was not willing to embrace rap music. Uh, pretty much Deliverance was mainly marketed through the BET and MTV channels. But this album was designed to really cross over into country music. And country radio, the CMT, they did not want to touch it one iota. And it missed out on a great deal of its potential due to the divisions in the music business and, frankly, Nashville's unwillingness to listen to it. However, the year after Deliverance comes out, a whole bunch of stuff starts happening in the country world that really denotes that, hey, we're going to start doing more about this. Uh, Tim McGraw does a duet with Nelly, which was weird, but okay, whatever, Midwestern rapper. Uh, we're going to talk about Nelly next week when we talk about the video Vixens. Uh, it's pretty much just a country song. It does get some play on CMT. Uh, Big and Rich comes out in 2004. They're uh, part of a collective called the Music Mafia. Uh, gets significant play on, um, they get significant play on CMT with their song Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy, which is... Very strong rap, rap elements, uh, not many country elements at all, except that the guy's wearing a country hat and they're white with big belt buckles and jeans. Now, a member of the Music Mafia who starts getting more attention is Cowboy Troy Coleman, if you go over one slide. Cowboy Troy Coleman is originally from Texas. He's originally from Dallas. Uh, starts rapping while he's at UT. He comes much older to the rap world. Uh, he's like in his late 20s, uh, early 30s, whenever he meets John Rich and kind of gets brought over to Nashville. Uh, for instance, if you watch the music video for Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy, uh, Cowboy Troy is very prominently featured. I mean, he's six foot four. You, you can't miss him. Uh, because of the success of Big and Rich, he gets a chance to do his own country rap album. Uh, which is heavily produced by John Rich, but also by Chon, uh, by uh, Troy Coleman, by you know, by Cowboy Troy. Uh, he presents he presents himself as an embodiment of what he calls hick hop, and his music is not very much in line with other country artists. And he's actually it's it's very interesting because he's very right wing. We'll talk about that. Most of the other rap country rap artists are kind of apolitical 
uh, are maybe lean a little bit to like the Democrat side if they say anything, but uh, he's super right wing. Uh, the first song that he does that gets the, the attention, I play Trick with the Train, it's kind of a... It's a problematic song because this is done exclusively for the CMT people. It's exclusively done for country music. And in the song, he kind of professes that he's the first one to ever combine country music and rap music. He says he, it's, it's hip-hop, is what he calls it. Uh, people say it's not possible, not probable, too radical, but I've already been on the CMAs. Hell, Tim McGraw said he liked the change. That he likes the way my hip-hop sounds and like the way the crowd screams when I stomp the ground. Uh, very much country music production. They don't really talk to any rappers. Uh, there's no, like, Dirty South guest stars or uh, producing and whatever. Uh, the album is a middling success, by all accounts. It is a middling success. Number two on country. Number 15 on Hot Album. Um, that pretty much is the apex of his career. Uh, pretty much, I hate to accuse Nashville of tokenism, but pretty much after this came out, he became Nashville's standard, we need a black rap guy. Uh, that's pretty much what he was. Within the next year, he was a co-host of Nashville Star, which is like American Idol, but for country music. Um, he appears on the 2005 song Our America with Big and Rich, which is a very patriotic uh, version of, you know, the Star-Stangled Banner, the Pledge of Allegiance. It's super right-wing, or Republican-American. If you go over one... S well, actually, if you go over several slides, we'll talk about that later. If you go over two slides, you'll see the 2008 Republican National Convention where he performs this song. He also performs a version of I Played Chicken with the Train called I Played Chicken with McCain uh, in re to uh, the Republican nominee of John McCain. And it's, 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 it's he's kind of the regular black guy for CMT or for country music pretty much until Darius Rucker comes about. Uh, he never has, and, and I, I should mention that um, he is not promoted on BET or MTV, but then again, he never really tries to get promoted on BET or MTV. Um, he still has a career to this day. If you ever watch ESPN College Game Day on Saturday mornings, he performs the opening song of Coming to Your City. So by the time, it's weirdly enough, by the time we get to 2006, uh, the second wave of country rap is starting to recede. And this happens for several reasons. There, there are several reasons why they start to recede, but it, it's clearly evident that um, these acts really aren't as quite as popular as they were just a few years prior. Uh, Nappy Roots and Field Mob both got dropped from their labels. They tried to revitalize after being dropped from national labels by signing with Independence. Uh, found their album sales and critical success um, not level to, to the same level. Uh, David Banner does do more releases for uh, Universal, but they're less country rap and more Dirty South. Uh, Warren Bubba Sparks kind of goes the same way too. Mathis is the same thing. Um, he signs with Purple Ribbon Records in 2005, which is actually Big Boy from Outkast's record label. His first album, entitled The Charm, because the third album, you know, third, third Time's a Charm, uh, total departure from his earlier work. There's really no country rap elements. Ironically, it gives him his first, like, really hit single, which is Miss New Booty, tops at number seven. Uh, however, that kind of denotes the end of him as a career. Uh, Miss New Booty is produced by Kali Park, Mr. Kali Park, who's a very Dirty South Atlanta-based producer. It's not country at all. It's not country rap at all. Um, Mathis doesn't stay with Purple Ribbon very long. He tries to make his own record label in 2007. Uh, New South Entertainment doesn't really find much of anything. Cowboy Troy Coleman, like I said, he's on ESPN now doing Coming to Your City. Uh, Kid Rock is pretty much still embraced by Nashville. He is you know, just Southern country rock now. Uh, for instance, he does the song... Um, all Summer Long in 2007, which samples Sweet Home Alabama. It's like, oh, here's what it's like being like a Southern kid, even though he talks about the shores of Michigan, but it's very Southern-infused. It's very interesting what kind of happens to him all, but it's definitely things have kind of gotten worse. Uh, they also get way more political. I, I should say it gets way more political. Uh, kid Rock becomes a big booster for the Republican Party. Uh, if you go over a couple of slides, you'll see big, well... Rich from Big and Rich, John Rich, Cowboy Troy, and Gretchen Wilson of the Republican National Convention. 
And so then we get to the question of why does the second wave recede? Why does it recede? Why does it go away? And it's for a few things. Um, why does it recede? Like I said, a few things. Number one, uh, digital distribution. Uh, we talked about this earlier when we talked about the end of the 90s. Uh, digital distribution totally changes the music business. Uh, albums become less less common. They, they become less important. The single becomes much more important. Also, there's just a downturn in money. There's no two ways about it. Even though the music business was at its apex around 2000, by the time we get to 2007, 2008, it's much, much, much lower. Uh, number two, the, the customer base that they're really going for uh, of, you know, rural persons, um, I want to say about 20% of the American population is rural, and of that, about 20% is African American. Now, this changes depending on the state. Uh, for instance, South Carolina has the highest African American population. Um, for most of its history. Mississippi has the highest African-American population based upon percentage. A uh, good number of whom are rural. Same thing with Mississippi, uh, Louisiana. And so it, it's very much not the same bent of it. Um, you know, never they never had a lot of purchasing power. Uh, you know, if that's what they're going for, the, for this rural type of music, even though it is speaking to these people in their in their place, uh, speaking more to like their type of lifestyle, which is otherwise overlooked by most other genres. But the primary cause for this recession of the second wave of country rap is simply Nashville's unwillingness to embrace hip-hop as a genre. Uh, yes, country music does start to have more hip-hop elements, such as uh, Jason Aldean's Dirt Road Anthem and Bo Blake Shelton's Boys Around Here, even Brad Paisley's so cringeworthy Accidental Racist with LL Cool J. Um, this does not translate, though, into rappers or country rappers signing with Nashville record labels, with the exception of Cowboy Troy. Now, the hesitance of Nashville to really embrace country rap is due in large part to demographic factors. Um, country music fans, in general, on average, they tend to be a bit more older, affluent, and here's the big thing, more committed to older technologies than their rap or pop counterparts. The particular thing is affluence and also committed to older technologies. Uh, country music actually tends to have some of the mo most affluent fans. You, you probably wouldn't think that, but they do. On average, country music fans actually tend to have a bit more money, but in particular, they are much more committed to older media. So like whenever rap and pop music, which by their nature tend to go a bit younger with their audience who has a bit less money, uh, they're not buying CDs. Uh, country music is still buying CDs. Country music fans are still buying a lot of CDs. Uh, may not be as high as they once were, but it's much more consistent. It's a much uh, stronger percentage than like rap and pop groups are getting, if that makes sense. Like country music, there's still less CDs being sold, but it's a much higher percentage compared to other genres, mainly because the country music fans are more committed to older forms of technology. Uh, so this this older, more affluent, more committed to you know these older technologies, it's it's a demographic that I call the Bass Pro Bourgeoisie. Uh, I mentioned in one of your classes, I believe, that I'm studying something new. You know, I've done a lot of rap music. Uh, the Bass Pro Bourgeoisie are actually the thing I'm studying now. Um, just this idea of you know the, it's rural affluent-er, the most rural people, you know, it's the higher end of the affluence level, um, they have money and they have these sensibilities that aren't really fit in by either the rural or the urban mindset. Uh, the best example I can give you of Bass Pro Bourgeoisie is, I'm sure we all know somebody like this, uh, somebody who owns a pickup truck but like doesn't really need a pickup truck. They, they drive it to like their accounting job or something. You know, they might live in the country, quote unquote, but they're not really from the country. Um, Growing up in Baton Rouge, I will say there were tons of these people, like people who are from Baton Rouge. They don't really hunt or fish. They might own a gun to say that they hunt, but they really don't hunt or fish. Um, they drive pickup trucks to like work as an accountant or a lawyer. They make money. They're, they're not like, you know, super rich, but they're definitely on the higher end of the socioeconomic scale. 
And it's just this interesting dynamic because they have a disproportionate amount of power and authority, uh, particularly when it comes to country music. Even though, like, um, it, it's just very fascinating. Like, you know, once Nashville brings in a country rapper, uh, the patriotic Republican elements of Cowboy Troy were overly emphasized, uh, as so he'd be least likely to upset the audience base. Uh, before this, Cowboy Troy doesn't really talk too much about politics or Republican politics. That really changes once he becomes popular. You know, when he does things, you can finally go over one more slide to the Republican National Convention, uh, really kind of pushing this idea. Uh, there's a very interesting interview that Cowboy Troy once gave where he's like, hey, you know, I used to watch pro wrestling, but then the uh, stories got kind of boring, so I decided to learn Mandarin. Uh, this, you know, Mandarin Chinese, very interesting dynamics here where it's like he's appealing to a much more affluent than the persona they might be embodying, if that makes sense. Like the audience is, t the artist, I should say, is taking on a persona even different than its audience, but what the audience claims at once. The ebb and flow of country rap's second wave demonstrated how the genre was more than mere novelty and actually had the capacity to speak to the experience of rural poverty regardless of race. Despite its inability to find sustained commercial presence, country rap actually has merit and demonstrated the complex political, racial, and economic realities of rural Americans. Furthermore, the experience of artists such as Nappy Roots, Field Mob, and David Banner provide insight to the unique living circumstances of rural African Americans, uh, particularly from those from the Gulf South, as we see, and showed how such experiences could be commercially profitable, albeit for a short window of time. Although hybrid songs such as Old Town Road will undoubtedly continue to be sporadic hits, the experience of the heyday of country rap second wave showed the complex and often contradictory elements, and not only commercial music's business but also American society as a whole. Now, if you go over one more slide, I don't talk too much about this, but there is a third wave of country rap that does come about. Um, there is a third wave of country rap that does come about, uh, really kind of embodied by uh, artists by the name of Colt Ford. His real name is Jason Brown, white artist. He has Average Joe's Records. Uh, pretty much exclusively does country rap singers, so that's something that country rap never really had before, was like a producers and a record label, which is familiar with the genre. Actually has infrastructure, which kind of does askew Nashville. It's kind of independent because of digital distribution. Uh, however, unlike second wave country music, uh, sorry, country rap, third wave is exclusively white, rural, and has a very strong political bent that more than occasionally ventures into white supremacy. Uh, a lot of these rappers are quite political and quite like right-wing, beyond right-wing. This is not like a Republican-Democrat thing, but like they venture into white supremacy. Uh, this alienates a lot of second-wave country rappers. Uh, I, for instance, Bubba Sparks, he's like, I was signed to um, Average Joe's Records for a while, but I, I don't mess around with them. You know, they assume I'm all these things that, I, that I'm not. It's just a very interesting dynamic. And so while we talk about this, which is kind of a continuance of what we talked about before with uh, the Confederate flag imagery and all, uh, just think about, you know, what a complex thing identity can be. You know, how does music speak for a rural area? Um, you know, if you are African-American, I know some of you in this class are African-American and are rural you know, what is that like? I mean, how, is, how does your background get reflected or not reflected by some of the popular entertainment you consume? But with that, this is Dr. Tully for History 304. Um, have a good one.